Well, all year we're focusing on learning the way of Jesus, and today we're continuing a series that we started last week on the Ten Commandments. Now, the way of Jesus, as described in the Bible, includes a unique message about what is wrong with the world, of who God is and what he has done and is doing today to address what is wrong with the world, the problems of the world. Christians call this message the gospel or the good news of Jesus. But also, the way of Jesus, of following Jesus, of becoming a disciple of Jesus, includes a whole new way of life, including a new set of morals or ethics or an understanding of what is right and wrong according to God. Now, before we jump into the second command of the 10 this morning, I'd just like to address a common question or objection that many modern people have about the commands of the Bible. And the objection goes something like this. You Christians don't obey every command in the Bible. There are commands in, in the Old Testament against eating pork or eating shellfish or getting tattoos. And you seem fine with ignoring those commands today. So aren't you simply picking and choosing which commands that you prefer to follow? For example, isn't your belief in the sexual ethic of the Bible, which prohibits any sexual relationship outside of marriage uh, between one man and one woman, is that not based more on, on your own preferences or biases than on the command of God? How can you accept one and reject others? And that's a fair question. I don't know if you have ever had a friend or family member ask you something along those lines, or maybe you've wondered that yourself over the years. Now, I th if that's what is actually going on with Christians and the law, or the commands of God in the Bible, I certainly understand why some people believe that Christians are bigots. So why do Christians believe that the Ten Commandments are still valid while other commands in the Old Testament law are no longer valid, such as the dietary laws or the law against tattoos? Well, the answer is this. The 600 plus commands of the Mosaic law in the Old Testament contain three categories of laws. There is the civil law, ceremonial law, and the moral law. Now the civil laws governed the nation of ancient Israel in the land of Canaan, including certain crimes and punishments, uh, the allotment of land, how the poor were to be treated, how debt worked for them, and many other things. The ceremonial laws governed worship in ancient Israel. And those laws included the whole sacrificial system, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the temple, dietary laws, annual festivals, and more. Now, the civil laws ceased to operate many years later during the time of the exile when the nation of Israel was basically destroyed for their covenant unfaithfulness to God. The ceremonial laws were in place until the new covenant established by Jesus because, as the book of Hebrews points out, the whole system of sacrifice and priesthood and temple and on and on were all fulfilled by Jesus, our great high priest. However, the third category of laws in the Old Testament, the moral law, is still valid because the moral laws deal with morality or what is right and wrong for all people according to God. Now, of course, there is so much more 
that we probably should say about the purpose of various laws in the Old Testament. And many of the civil and ceremonial laws have an underlying moral principle which can be very helpful for us to understand today. Like what was wrong with getting tattoos then? Um, that's, that's helpful, but that's um, not what we're going to be talking about today. The big idea today is that Christians are, you can have a pulled pork sandwich, but you still can't murder people or cheat on your spouse. Okay, do you understand the difference between those things? <laughs> I think you do. We're not picking and choosing what we like or what we don't like from like the buffet of God's law. We believe we are still responsible for the moral law because it relates to how we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and how we are to love our neighbor as ourself today in Christ. Now those principles really don't change much at all regardless of what the broader culture thinks or believes about what is right and wrong. So with all of that, Let's uh, jump back into the Ten Commandments. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, please take it and open it to the book of Exodus, chapter 20, starting with verse 1. Exodus is the second book in the Bible, chapter 20, starting with verse 1. We'll put the scripture on the screens for you as well. So we'll read through this. Uh, we'll actually start with the first command. Uh, it's, a short, it's a short little section here, and we'll, get to, we'll unpack the second of the ten together. Verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is God's word. Well, as we said last week, the book of Exodus, written by Moses, the mighty prophet and leader of the ancient people of Israel, about, about 1300 BC in rough numbers, describes a key turning point in the history of, well, of everyone, I would say, but key turning point of history when God rescued the people of Israel from captivity or slavery in Egypt, the most powerful uh, empire on the planet at the time. And he entered into this God, this Yahweh God, who we met last week, entered into a covenant relationship or a special relationship with this people Israel, which included giving them the law. Eventually, God would bring them into the land that he had promised their ancestors to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the first half of the book of Exodus describes really the wild events when God rescued his people by his power and by his grace from Egypt and met with them here at Mount Sinai to give them the details of this new covenant. Now, a key takeaway from last week is that the pattern of God in the Old Testament is the same as the pattern of God in the New Testament. First, God rescues his people by his power and his grace, and then he gives them a law to govern their way of life. Obedience to the law does not lead to salvation as it does in every other religious system and philosophy in life. Salvation leads us, according to God in the Bible, to want to obey him and learn his way. 
Now, second, we saw last week that this covenant with God was not with God in general or one of the gods. At this time in history, as, many, as in many places today, almost everyone everywhere believed that there were many gods and goddesses who governed various aspects of life. Now, if you were an ancient Israelite and you told your Egyptian neighbor or someone else who was traveling from out of town that you were worshiping and serving God, people would have asked, which one? It's only at this moment in history at Mount Sinai, in the first of the Ten Commandments, in fact, that we considered last week, where the concept of monotheism came into history. That Yahweh God, the creator of heaven and earth, claimed that he was the only living God. He was the only truly divine being. And he had just proved his power over all of the uh, many gods and goddesses of the Egyptians in the dramatic rescue of Israel. So some of the laws of the Ten Commandments are similar to other laws, law code, legal codes in ancient Mesopotamia, but the first command is radically different. Yahweh wasn't just another god among many, or even the most powerful god in the pantheon of gods. He claimed that he was the only one. There is only one God, we saw last week. This is the foundation of the Ten Commandments. This is the foundation of what it means to understand reality according to God. Now, of course, this first command naturally leads to the second command. If there is only one God, then there is only one God who is worthy of worship. So let's look again at the second command, starting with verse 4. The Lord says, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth, on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Now let's pause here for a second. So Yahweh God had already said that there were no other gods or goddesses. So the second command isn't so much a prohibition against worshiping other gods or goddesses. Now, of course, that was a perennial problem for the people of Israel and everywhere, people everywhere. But rather, it's about how this command is, is more about how God wants people to worship him. And he says that Israel should not make images or objects for use in worship. So remember, as we said last week, the Israelites were, for all practical purposes, Egyptian at this point, at least culturally. They were liberated from Egypt only a couple months before receiving the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, a place where they and their ancestors had lived for over 400 years. So they would have looked like Egyptians and thought like Egyptians and spoken a lot like Egyptians. They would have been influenced, of course, through the legacy of their, their ancestors. Um, but if you think about, back to school, some of us, that's a long time ago, but think back, if you will, when you learned about ancient Egypt. Can you picture like hieroglyphics in your, in your mind? Do you remember those things? Hieroglyphics are full of images of gods and goddesses in Egypt and Egyptian culture. And they're all in the form of created things. Most Egyptian gods and other gods everywhere around the world at this time were associated with something in creation, whether it was an animal 
or whether it was like a, the sun or moon or stars or something like that, maybe the emperor, some, something or someone. And the place of worship, which would be a temple, temples were full of these types of images or icons or sculptures, statues, something. And even though people had made them, the people bowed down in worship of them. So just as it would have been incredibly weird at this time in history to claim that there was only one God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, it would have also been unthinkably weird to not have some sort of visible representation of your God in your temple. Some sort of image of something made in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below to worship. So far, the first two commandments of the 10 would have made the people of Israel very different from their neighbors. In fact, different from everyone in the world. But why would God not want his people to use some sort of image in their worship of him? Like, what difference would that make? Surely the people would know that the image is merely a representation of God, right? I mean, what, what could be wrong with that? Well, the answer lies in who God is. And last week we saw that Yahweh God is not just the God of Israel. He is the one true and living God. The whole earth is mine, he said. And he is not some divine spark. He is personal and near. He speaks. He has a name. He wants to relate in a relationship with people. He is also not limited to one nation or one location. He is universal and he is infinite. He is just as much the God of Egypt as he is of Israel. And he isn't only very wise or very powerful. He is infinitely wise and infinitely powerful. Finally, Yahweh God is not part of his creation. He is the creator who is transcendent over all. So, do you see how representing this God who revealed himself through his word in history with an image of some created thing, even a created thing that represents great power or wisdom or life, would shrink God down to something that can fit within his creation. This would distort people's understanding of who God is, and a distortion in your understanding of God's character or his nature results in not true worship, but worshiping a God of your own making, an idol. Now this would be the absolute opposite of what God wanted for his people. God doesn't want people to worship because he just really likes worship. He wants an exclusive relationship with people who actually know him. And when you truly understand who God is, worship is the only appropriate response to him. Then in verses uh, five and six, God gives an indication both of the blessings and the curses of obedience to this command. 
In other words, there are real consequences of both our understanding of who God is and our worship of him. So let's look at that. Verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Now, this is a serious statement. And this might additionally be confusing for, for us because it seems to conflict with other passages in the Old Testament which describe the personal accountability for sin which is just and a part of God's justice. For example, I'll read this to you. This is from Deuteronomy 24, 16. It says, Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. <laughs> Comforting, right? Okay, but it's actually just. If your son steals or if your daughter does something breaking the law, your whole tribe or your whole family shouldn't be punished as a result. That wouldn't be just. But what about the idolatrous patterns of life that are taught from one generation to the next? Are there not real consequences in life for how parents raise their kids? The answer is certainly. Of course there are. Some of us have spent our whole adult lives trying to recover from how we were raised. And some sins seem to carry on from one generation to the next, just as trauma and other things are passed down through families as well. So the context here is not so much about crime and punishment, but of having or not having a covenant relationship with the one true and living God. And the results of that relationship or lack of relationship over time within a family, within a society. Idolatry isn't excused because you learned it from your parents. We are individually responsible for how we deal with God. But there are destructive patterns which can easily prove harmful to the third and fourth generation. And God is a jealous God. Now, if this is true, it is incredibly helpful for us to know this. This isn't something to play with. Isaiah 42 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. That's a translation of the personal name of Yahweh. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. This is a line that God does not cross. Good to know, right? But look at the comparison here back in Exodus 20 of what happens when you have a family that is fully committed to worshiping the one true and living God. Faithful love and life-giving relationship with God for a thousand generations. Now, that's not fair at all, is it? But it shows that God desires far more to love than to punish. Later in Exodus, God reveals more about his character, saying that he is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Here, as everywhere in the Bible, God is both just and merciful. 
But lest we be tempted to cower in fear of this living God, we have to remember the context. Again, he has already saved Israel by his power and his grace. Later, he explicitly says that he did this because of his love for them and his desire that they would know him and find the freedom and the joy and the peace that they were created to enjoy in him. God is great, and that would be fearsome if he were not good, but his goodness is without measure. Okay, so what does this teaching mean for us today? How do we apply the second commandment to our lives today? Well, I was especially struck this week that we can never say everything that you could say about any topic, much less a topic so great as our understanding of God and our worship of him. So I guess I'll just leave you with two meager thoughts today. The first is this. In a broken world, we are all, every single one of us, are tempted to replace the creator God with created things as the true object of love in our hearts and the main thing that we worship, sacrifice, and serve in life. Now, according to Jesus, the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Fundamentally, love is what worship is. But our hearts are easily distracted and they are far too easily satisfied. We find some created thing or person or perhaps several created things or people, and our hearts are drawn in love to it or to them. Because we think that if we give our lives for that thing or that person, it will bring us the freedom and the joy and the peace that we long for, but it won't. It will only lead back to slavery in Egypt. For some, their hearts are drawn to financial independence. For others, it's kids or grandkids, family relationships. For others, it's the accomplishments, the accolades, the recognition of career or education or achievement. But there are many created things that consume our hearts and our minds, our imaginations. We think, if I could just have that, then my life would be complete. Then I would be safe. Then I would be somebody. The old images of animals or the sun, moon, and stars no longer seem so weird when we realize that they represented the same desire for power, approval, comfort, and control that we have today. So let me ask you this. What is the main object of love in your heart? Who or what drives your service or your sacrifice in life? Whoever or whatever the answer is, is the true object of your worship. That is your God. They are your master or Lord. Everybody worships something. The Bible is one long case made and call to reorder the love of our hearts to be fixed on the one true and living God. A God who is as good as he is great. 
a God who saves by grace and mercifully helps us grow in our understanding of who he is and who we are in him. The second thing I'd like to share, this is a, in closing, is that the second command points us directly to Jesus. Without Jesus, we would be hopelessly lost in our frantically distractive, distracted and destructive love of created things in the place of the creator who is to be forever praised. Jesus not only modeled this type of singular love for his father in heaven, refusing to worship or bow down or serve anything or anyone else, but also Jesus perfectly reveals to us who God is. When you listen to Jesus, you hear God. When you look at Jesus, you see God because the Son is the image of the invisible God. Jesus reveals to us fully who Yahweh God is. Finally, because of his life and death and resurrection from the dead, we can be forgiven for our foolish idolatry and we can be freed from their enslaving power. In other words, we too can be freed from captivity in Egypt and find our way into the promised land, finding the freedom and the joy and the peace that we were created to enjoy. So today, do not delay, but turn from the created things that you have been loving with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Turn from the things or turn from the people that you have been worshiping and serving with your life and come to Jesus. He is the only master. He is the only Lord who loves us and frees us and gives us life. He is the creator. He is the savior. And he is the only one who is worthy of worship, both now and forevermore. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your great patience of us we are such fragile creatures in some ways. And we are so easily distracted. And we are so far too easily satisfied with the stuff of life and the people around us. We are too easily impressed. Lord, would you forgive us for the many times that we have run after these things thinking that they will give us what only you can give us. Thinking that there'll be an adequate replacement for who you are. And there's nothing. There's no one who can replace you. Father, thank you for sending your son, our Lord Jesus, into this world so that we might see more clearly, we might understand better who you are. And through his work, and through your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit, we might actually be set free. God, would you help us in following the way of Jesus, learn to reorder our hearts in such a way that we adequately worship you and we give you all of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.